In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure, cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, the Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to, sp uh, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps, inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill. Climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash big climb. All right, welcome to this week's edition of the Magic Hour here at the Forum Club here at the Athletic LA. Uh, Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky, and joined by our friend from the Athletic LA, Bill Oram, who is just about to start a, a vacation, a well-earned vacation, but is doing this on his way out the door. Thank you, Bill. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, guys. I looked at the calendar and realized that the NBA season is going to go until October 12th, potentially. <laughs> and as it turns out, we are in the only offseason we're going to get. So I figure if my family is going to get to see me without the stress of work, accompanying it it probably needed to be now <laughs> yeah th this new nba by the way thanks season. you're just leaving us behind to do all the work during our off season too so that's okay but don't worry about us we'll be fine yeah our our, our spouses are used to despising the nba season and what we do for a living so it's fine in certain ways they won't know the difference i want you guys to know that i did think about you before making this decision <laughs> <laughs> did you decide specifically because you could screw us over <laughs> you're like you know what this works out pretty Pretty well. Collateral damage. <laughs> As I often tell my wife, what about Bill's marriage? <laughs> So um, as people know by now, uh, we have converted the, the, uh, our standard Lakers podcast into a movie, sports movie podcast. And you know, hopefully we kind of keep doing this even when the, the games return because it actually looks, Bill, like things are going to start happening again over the next few weeks. So uh, maybe we'll just do both because this is kind of fun. Our movie this week is The Sandlot, a film about you know, kind of a, a coming-of-age movie. I'll read straight from the Rotten Tomatoes summary. About a group of young boys growing up in California in 1962, a new shy boy, played by Thomas Geary, moves into the neighborhood where he is initially rejected by the local boys because he doesn't know how to play baseball, to say the least. Soon, he learns the sport and joins the group of boys who play ball in a local sandlot, and with his new friends, he has a variety of adventures. Sounds about it's right. hard to argue, but that's about yeah. what happens. Sounds like a great movie. I can't wait to watch it, you guys. Uh, so do we <laughs> play at the same time? And how, do, how does this work? Mystery Science Theater podcast. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, Bill, did you suggest the movie? I did. And it's, it's interesting. It's not because this is a movie. I, I, I don't think it's the greatest sports movie of all time. It has become one of my favorites because I have, just out of repetition, I've watched it so much recently. I have a four-year-old son who um, loves baseball, loves um dressing up as a baseball player. He has baseball pants and a baseball belt and baseball socks. And so he always wants to watch baseball movies and you click over to Amazon prime and try to figure out what's a good baseball movie. And 
you find yourself watching rookie of the year in the sandlot over and over and over uh, all the time. And so this summer in particular has been a big summer of the sandlot. I have a little bit of a personal history with the sandlot that I'm sure we can get to uh, probably pretty quickly, but it's a movie I, I now know pretty well. And this is a movie that resonates so much more deeply to me as an adult than I think it would have or did when I was a child, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I was seven, I want to say when this movie came out and that feels maybe just a little young, for the, for the movie, maybe just a hair because, you know, most of your characters are a little bit older, maybe, you know, within a deep fly balls distance of their teenage years. So maybe I missed it a little bit the first time around, but um, as an, as an adult looking back on it, you know, a movie that really plays to nostalgia and a lot of the things that we love about sports and love about baseball and um, the idea of coming together in your neighborhood um, just really strikes all the right notes for me. So it's, it's a movie I now have a great adoration for. It's funny, like, you know, so much, I think, of the popularity around this. And this is a movie, it cost $7 million to make. It made $32 million. So it's a, it was a pretty big surprise hit when it came out. But it's also one of those movies, too, that has a big split between uh, the, the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, which is in the 90s, uh, and the, the critic score, which is in the 60s. Um, which I think is F- funny it, because the movie is set in the 60s. <laughs> that's probably what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can we make this work mathematically? They, they, they all colluded to make sure that the Rotten Tomatoes score, like, and by the way, the, they the, did the this movie like, came out in the '90s, was set in the '60s, reflected on Rotten yes. Tomatoes to perfection. And by the way, they managed to have the foresight to do this like 15, maybe 20 years before Rotten Tomatoes even existed. So kudos mm-hmm. to those critics. They were really, they were really ahead of the game. But it's like so much of this really is a nostalgia play in terms of how people look back at this. And and I was thinking about it like there's nothing about their childhood, like what these kids are doing, is at all like mine. Like I, we didn't. Is that run true? Out and just play? No, we didn't play pickup. You guys are from St. Louis, the, the Hill. What does that have <laughs> like, to do with anything? Yogi, Yogi Berra, Joe Carriola. Like Bill. I just, I just imagine. No, but I just always like imagined that the Hill was like a place where Yogi Berra and Joe Garagiola went and like. Played baseball like it no, it's, it's, where they, it's where they went to get Italian food. There's not a ball field there. Italian food. Even, I'm sure there is, but those people are 45 years older than we are. I mean, like Joe Garagiola might have done that in 1956 or 52 or 29. I don't know. What does that have to do with my childhood? Uh, you guys, you guys are very difficult to pinpoint in age. You know, once the hair goes, I there's, a, um, there's, there, there's just like it's like it's like throwing a, a, a ball in the ocean. It could, how about I, I'll give you a clue. I was in the same graduating high school class as Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> you're gonna have you're gonna have to uh, explain further. I'm, I'm not that old. Uh, oh, I thought I, was, I, I thought there was really gonna be a story here about you being in no. high school with somebody named U.S. Grant. No, it was I like was actually cool. Ulysses S. Grant. No, I, I'm no. I'm I the general. Grew up in the a. I was born in 1975. Okay. Yeah, the general. That's what we called him even then. <laughs> so it's sort of not exactly like I watch Stranger Things. That's much more kind of reminiscent of yes, my childhood. I like agree. That, that hits me, you know, video games and, you know, in the basement, you know, Andy, you, you actually played Dungeons and Dragons with your friends. Nerd. Nerd. <laughs> no, you know what? It was weird. We didn't really play it in a nerdy way because none of us actually understood how to play. Uh-huh. There's no I, non-nerdy way to play Dungeons well, and Dragons. Well, there's, okay. There's there, no but cool there, way to do it. No, I, oh, I didn't say we were cool. I said we didn't do it as nerdy as possible because none of us really got it. Like I'm not, I'm not pretending that we didn't play, but none of us really understood how to do it. And there was also 
around the age where we started becoming more and more aware of alcohol, mm. which Ooh. for me was young. Um, all right, so let's stuff. go through some of the dungeons and drambuie. <laughs> <laughs> that stuff is disgusting. Drambuie, by the way, we do not come from a family of drinkers, Bill. And one of the only things I ever saw would ever see our dad drink was drambuie. Like what every he got a gift bottle every couple of years. <laughs> it seemed like he would pour himself a small yeah. little little uh, cup or a little glass of drambuie, and that's what he would drink. Like on a special occasion, he would pour out a little bit of a not particularly good tasting liquor. A snifter. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just, that's, that's how we grew up. To the point where eventually, like, you know, they were having some party, you know, after Andy had gone to college or whatever. And they were like, what kind of alcohol do we need? I, I gave them a list and I told them, you know, you want this, you want that. They're like, oh, well, can we use any of the stuff that we have? And I said, no. And they're like, why not? Does it go bad? I'm like, it's not that it goes bad. Every bottle that you have is filled with water. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, because Andy would dilute it when he would steal it. He would just fill it back up with, with water. And he's like, well, then they were like, well, how do you know? And it's like, because when I went to steal it, I found out it was already <laughs> turned into water. So no, you cannot serve that to anybody. It's basically old skunky water. Kind of looking at the, the lineup here for uh, the Sandlot. One of the, the, the interesting things about it, it stars nobody you've ever heard of, like the actual mm -hmm. main people. You know, Dennis Leary is in it, Karen Allen is in it, James Earl Jones is in it, but they are not the principal players in this movie. It is directed by a guy, David Mickey Evans, who you haven't heard of if you're just like a casual movie going person. Sure. You know, David Mickey Evans is known mostly for the same. Did he write lot. Beethoven's third? Was that the other one? Like no, Beethoven's. I don't think he did. I think he wrote Ace Ventura. Junior pet detective. I think he had TV a Beethoven movie. too. No, he, he did. A, a Bill is correct. He's got a Ooh, Beethoven's okay. third and a Beethoven's fourth. He also directed, uh, remember that movie First Kid? Oh, I like that movie with Sinbad. Yes, he directed First Kid and he directed Radio Flyer. Right. Um, he, he's, I was his, the movie he's most known for are Radio Flyer and The Sandlot and The Sandlot 2. And that's about it. So, I mean, like, he's not like, you know, he's, he's written a bunch of stuff and he good, good for him. He seems to have he directed Ed or he wrote Ed, I should say. The, the TV LeBlanc, show? No, the Matt LeBlanc oh. uh, chimpanzee movie. I thought you meant the bowling alley lawyer. Which also, also was set in baseball. Film. Yes. Yes. Um, so he wrote that. This is not somebody we, we did uh, Robert Town last week with Without Limits. Robert Town is a more revered writer of screen than David Mickey Evans. And, you know, and it's, it's also where like nobody really, Andy kind of broke out either. It's not like you can look at that core of kids and say, Oh yeah, this was the first time we saw blank. And he really, none of these guys ever really broke out. You know, it's interesting too. Um, I mean, first of all, I just want to say quickly because she has a small role as the main character's mom, uh, small's mom. I love Karen Allen. She's great. And, and I wish Karen Allen had become a bigger star. Raiders obviously was her breakout, and then she was in Starman, and she's really good in that. She's great in Scrooged. Like, I, I really love Karen Allen. Just, I just think she's fantastic on screen. I was looking up, though, David Mickey Evans just to find out more, and he was born in 62. So he's playing pretty fast and loose with the notion of semi-autobiographical or, you know, my era because he was actually too young to have experienced this era 
that he's portraying, which I, there's nothing wrong with that. I just think it's interesting because no, I think because if it was him, it would this movie would be set in 1973, not 19. Right, that's what I'm saying. It, it's interesting because yeah. I think the assumption would be that he was maybe 20ish years older than he is, uh, or 15 years older. So he'd have that type of nostalgia for that era, and it turns out he really doesn't. He he was like a little little kid during the period he's portraying, or maybe not even born. So it's funny you guys have latched so much on to David Mickey Evans because the reason I have the history with this movie, I have to take you back you know, almost a decade to when I lived in Utah and, and worked for the Salt Lake Tribune. Maybe it was the 4th of July or something like that, but they showed the sandlot on the lawn at the Utah State Capitol. And I didn't know until I went to that. It was filmed primarily in Utah around the Salt Lake Valley. It takes place in the San Fernando Valley, but it is actually filmed in Utah. And I kind of latched onto that idea and ended up writing a, a story about the movie um, where I worked pretty closely with the president of the Utah Film Commission, uh, then was a guy named Marshall Moore, who now runs Utah Film Studios. And he also loved this movie, he was an LA kid, owns a Benny the Jet Rodriguez jersey. So his passion for the movie really came through. And he'd mentioned that night up on the, the hill at the Capitol that he wanted to have a 20th anniversary reunion of the cast of The Sandlot on the actual field where The Sandlot had been filmed. So I did a whole story where I went to where the actual field was um, and talked to a bunch of people who'd been involved, you know, building the sets and whatever else. And first of all, the field is in a little neighborhood in between, uh, you know, kind of a bunch of backyards kind of run into this one field that by the time I got there, 18 years later was just this, you know, kind of garbage strewn, dead grass, weedy, patch of dirt where you would have no indication that it was an iconic um, filming location. There was nothing to memorialize it. And so I did a story that kind of posed the question, kind of something you guys alluded to early on, which was why isn't the Sandlot the Sandlot anymore? And meaning why don't kids play this way? Why don't childhoods um, reflect what that movie portrays uh, anymore in you know roughly 2010? And then three years later, um, lo and behold, Marshall Moore made it work. He actually got the cast back um, to the Sandlot and they built the backstop where um, they were able to, you know, you were able to come and um, take a few swings on the actual Sandlot and they showed the movie and a lot of the cast was there for a Q&A. Um, and David Mickey Evans, who I spent a couple days around and got to know a little bit, was this really nice, kind of neurotic, but like really nice guy who, he had a Sandlot tattoo, I remember, on his on his left bicep. He just had like that, you know, the font of the of the, uh, on the movie poster, the Sandlot, he has that on his arm. So do I, but I'm not telling you where mine is. We can edit yeah. this out, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So then, the best memory of that experience, which again, when I went to like Sandlot 101, was David Mickey Evans, during this anniversary celebration, proposes to his girlfriend Aww. at home plate of the Sandlot. So it's like the one time in the history of sports where proposing during a sporting event is a good idea because by and large, don't it's not do a disaster. It. Don't do it. But, but this is the one time, go for it. Don't propose on the big screen. Propose when they're celebrating something you previously put on the big screen. Exactly. That's interesting. As far as the, the there is no Sandlot, I, I, I don't even remember seeing, I mean, there were like parks and stuff growing up, but like, Sort of like the play, idea. Of, I would play pickup, sort of pickup baseball, but for just also too, it's like every you know, once especially once you sort of spread out, people are more spread out, and all these. So you you know, I didn't grow up in a in a sort of a even a location where like 
you could we ride didn't. your bikes. Mm-hmm. I was going to say we didn't. could ride their bikes to enough places where you could meet nine people in one spot. We, right? we did not have two in our neighborhood. Like, you know, this is clearly like a neighborhood of kids They you know, they, they all live seemingly within a few blocks of each other max. And they all, you know, flock to this same sandlot. You see like these neighborhood get togethers that, you know, they balance baseball around us growing up. They're like, there weren't a lot of kids in our neighborhood. Right. So same, that, same, I mean, same for me. Like I grew up in a really rural area where it's like, you know, you'd have a few houses that you, you kind of look out your window and see sort of at the, at a distance. But I mean, it was the, the odds of there being a family with a kid your age in that house were pretty slim. One of the things about this movie that is, you know, we talked about how nobody really broke out. I mean, I think, I mean, not, not to say that nobody ever worked again. That's not true. Um, a lot of these guys, you know, the, the guy who played smalls, for example, still works. I mean, he, you know, Tom Geary, I believe is his name. He still works, but you know, none of them became stars in any meaningful way. The biggest Uh, breakout from this movie was probably Dennis Leary. Right. He had made like eight movies this this year. This is, this is around when Dennis Leary was starting to become a thing. And in 93 alone, he had appearances in this movie, um, judgment night, which is not good, but I love, uh, demolition man again, not good, but I love, Who's the man? Which I think that was uh, Ed Lover, the the rapper, and a little movie called National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon One, a parody of the Lethal Weapon movies with Sam Jackson and Emilio Estevez. And then the following year, he did The Ref, which it was the first time he actually starred in a movie. So I mean, really, like this, Dennis Leary really was the guy, oddly enough, who broke out the most from this movie. If anybody broke out, at right? All. And they, I don't think this it wouldn't have mattered. Like the the kid who played. Benny, for example, is Mike Vitar, or Mike Vitter, uh, however he pronounces it. Mike Vitar. It. He had a couple more credits. He played Luis in. Well, do you know the, his story? Uh, Ducks you guys know, do you know the no. story of Mike Vitar? Was- he was in Mighty Ducks three, I three. think. Maybe, maybe yes. D two. Was he also in D two or no? He was also. He played Luis in both D two and D three. Then he like retired from acting. He hasn't done anything since, as far as as far as I know. But like his story. One episode of Chicago Hope. So he becomes a firefighter in Los Angeles and was like working Skid Row in L.A. And he doesn't do a lot of interviews. He doesn't like, you know, lean on his childhood acting success. So again, it's been a decade. Some of these things could have changed. But 2010, 2011, I was really trying to track him down. And I was, again, working in Salt Lake. And I was calling like the fire station where he was, that he worked out of trying to get an interview. And again, at the time he said he he hadn't shown his kids the Sandlot. I think he said his wife had had bought the DVD and she would show the kids while he was like working like overnight shifts and things like that. But he hasn't like made a point of showing his kids the movies. Um, And they're obviously a lot older now than when I um, did, did that story. But I remember asking him again at the time, like if he would let his own children go play the way the kids in in the movie are are depicted uh, playing in the neighborhood, just free as can be in the summer. He's like, Oh no, absolutely not. We've got them in little league. But but, no, but that's part of the reason I like the nostalgia of it is, weird because like I'm, it's nostalgic for a way of living that i never had so it's like right. I, don't, I don't quite get it and most of the people our age didn't i think most people just but we can it. all like, relate there's a can... love for it's really the nostalgia i think is just we don't live in a time where people love baseball in the same way that kids did in you know when we were younger like that still was a thing you get up and you look at the box score in the morning you do all the you know you imitate your favorite players and you look at baseball cards like there's more to being a baseball playing kid than there is now and you know my son my oldest played for a couple seasons he was you like most like being on the team with his friends he wasn't that into the game itself it was fine but the experience of it 
for him and his teammates, it's like they watch stuff on YouTube. They like very few of them actually sit and watch baseball games. They don't really go to baseball games. Like it's not the same deal as it was when we were a kid. I loved baseball growing up. I played it all the time. I would throw, spend hours throwing the ball against the garage door and playing full games. And friends of mine would play, you know, one-on-one ghost runner on everything. Like everywhere is a ghost runner. Everywhere is a ghost fielder. A lot of ghosts. But like that's that, so that, you're that, talking about field of dreams. Yeah, that's the experience. I that, think your childhood that, was field of dreams. Yeah, we 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 did live in a cornfield. I think that's sort of the nostalgia play for people our age, because like Andy says, like there was no sandlot. There were no there was like a neighborhood park where fifteen kids would get together and just play baseball. That never happened ever. So I think it's also too. It's just a nostalgia play towards being a kid. And, and I think that's sort of the universal, the universal part of it that everybody can relate to is the movie is very, I think, specific and fairly vivid in terms of just tapping into what it is like to be a kid and the mentality of being a kid. Yep. So I think, in, I think it, that's part of the nostalgia that goes beyond just baseball and specifically how you grew up with baseball. I just think the, the sandlot itself and the fact that they have this field that they're able to play in in their neighborhood is really just a construct for whatever your childhood with your friends looked like. Whether you were playing, there could be a movie about kids who play baseball together at recess at school, which is something that's more relatable to me because that's when I was able to be around friends. It allows the story to work. You give, you provide a, a backdrop for kids to come together and, and, and be kids and do kid things, which includes baseball, but it also includes getting into mischief, getting out of mischief, Solving problems that never needed to be created in the first place. I mean, you talk about drinking your parents' liquor and, and you know, Scotty Small steals his stepdad's Babe Ruth autograph baseball. Yeah, I right. mean, it's all relatable because they're, it's just amplified because it is a movie. And to make it work in a film, you have to push it to the extremes to, to create a story arc. But to me, the movie works on so many levels because I don't see myself in any one of those characters necessarily, but you know, playing sports for the love of it, imagining yourself as a pro being, I, I do see myself a little bit in small, in smalls and wishing that there'd been a guy like Benny when I sucked at baseball. You know, I loved baseball and I, I trust nobody from my hometown is listening to this podcast, but if they are like, I loved baseball. I loved baseball more than anything, but I was scared of the ball. I was a shit batter because when that tall, some bitch would, would, would wind up and throw the ball. I thought it was coming from my head. Like every time. That, that's just what I thought was going to happen. So I'd always flinch. I couldn't hit. And like, I was just mocked relentlessly and I quit baseball because I didn't have a guy like Benny the Jet who told me to keep my head up and not worry about it. There is some relatability there for me, I guess. Like, keep your head up or um, you just, you know, you'll, you'll hit that ball. You'll see. You'll you just, you keep your head up there, son. You'll be okay. If Damon Runyon had written the script <laughs> of this movie, maybe. That's kind of like the relationship that I find to be most poignant the characters are just so good and distinct. I mean, I think, you know, the fact that we're talking about a movie that was 20 years, shoot, almost 30 years ago now, you've got iconic characters in Benny the Jet, Scotty Smalls. Scotty Smalls is part of the lexicon for people who've never even seen this movie. Oh, my kids know. My kids have not seen this movie and they know you're killing me, Smalls. People don't know it's from the Sandlot. I mean, I think a lot of, obviously a lot of people do, but plenty of people who use it do not. Obviously, Hamilton Porter is an iconic, is an iconic character. By the way, when we talk about actors who never really popped, Patrick Renna, to me, is one where I almost feel like he did. I feel like he is successful because I can see him in a handful of iconic, what I consider iconic roles. The Sandlot, the little brother in Son-in-Law, and the Big Green, which is another right, great sports movie. All right, Bill, seriously. And, 
<laughs> there's nothing iconic from son-in-law at all for people unfamiliar son-in-law the Polly shore vehicle there's nothing iconic about Polly shore much less any Disagree. of his movies Disagree. by the way he's worked it's not like he's quit acting i mean he's, no, he's got a like, long credit but, you know just, but he's never never broke out but from 93 to 95 well i'm sure when as it went through puberty broke out a little bit like we all did but from 93 to 95 you've got the sandlot you have son-in-law which Say what you want about Son-in-Law, but that was a... Bad film? (laughs) Dare we call it a blockbuster film? It was a highly visible mainstream film. That is true. With a a highly visible mainstream movie star lead. And also... The the Wheeze? Were you a big fan of the Wheeze there, Oram? Who was, the, who was the woman in that movie? I mean, it did did gross $36 million. Oh, yeah. Carla Gugino? Yes. Talk, Talk about... People who've aged well. Yeah, Carl Gugino. She's yeah. great. I love her. I feel like he was like sort of on his way, and then like recently he was in like a T-Mobile commercial, and I'm like, you're way too, you're way too successful to be in a T-Mobile commercial. And then you look back at his at his IMDb, and there's things like, give me something, Andy. You're looking at. He him. was on. He he played Chris on Lavantula. Yeah, Lavantula. Was, was Bobby and at. Bad Roomies. He was. He had, did an episode of CSI in 2007. He was a. Uh, had a couple episodes of Glow in 2018. That's good. Fear. What's Inc. funny is I don't remember Tom. him in Glow, and I've seen all, I've seen all of that, but I don't he remember it. Cupcake. Was that, was that a wrestler? I don't know. I don't I, I, I'm a little behind in my Glow watching. So he has worked a little bit, but he has never really broken out. And he, actually, I think the weakest performance among the kids, at least the ones that really matter, is actually Benny. You know, I don't think Mike Vitar is particularly good in that role. I think he is the weakest of all the kid actors which is a little bit problematic because he's also one of the most important. But, you know, the kid who plays Smalls is good. The kid who plays Squints is great. You know, it's like, what I love about Squints too is like Squints almost seems like a throwback to the throwback. Like you're already nostalgic and Squints seems like he's from an era like 15 years even before 1963. But I thought the kids are generally pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and the performances are pretty good. Like the only one that I did not think was all that good was Benny. The story about the casting of Benny the Jet was something along the lines of like he was picked out of a line for, you know, waiting for the movies somewhere in L.A. It was one of those, you know, plucked from obscurity casting choices. It wasn't like he went in. It wasn't in a ad- child ad- star yeah. brought there by his parents and whatever. Right, 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 right. They might have picked the wrong guy, I guess. I mean, it's, it doesn't matter. I mean, he's, I don't know how old he was at the time, but he's not, you know, wasn't great. So that happens. I have a problem with this movie journalistically, just with Scotty Smalls once he's once he's older, Scotty Biggs, when he is the the uh, the, the radio guy, I guess, or he's he's somehow in the press box. I can't remember. Is, is he a broadcaster? Or is oh he, no, is he's radio, watching. Radio? Is it the it's at the end, and it's it's one of the big flaws of the movie. He's watching his friend Benny the Jet Rodriguez as a Dodger, like steal home and all these things. And yeah. you're right, it is a little bit. I think he's just in the box. It's like he's. A, I got the impression he's like a guest. Oh, I don't think he's a guest. I think he's. Oh, is he in the press box? I think he's working media. Okay. I bore like I. I, 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 I'm supposed to be cheering, my man. Well, that's what I'm saying. And he's thumbs. It's like Benny the Jet scores a run, and he gives a thumbs up to his guy in the in the in the press box. It's like, first of all, once you've made it to this level, like, is every single time you cross home plate worth a thumbs up? Are you guys like? Maybe he just knew his friend was. I have to say, the guy who was playing Benny the Jet Rodriguez, the actor in the movie. uh, uh, at Dodger Stadium, the baseball player isn't a very good actor either. <laughs> that part carries through. Wikipedia: Scotty becomes a sports commentator, which is what is kind of my memory. And I guess, listen, like 
if you're the play-by-play guy for a team, that relationship is a little different than it is when it's you guys or me, where you are, you're working for an independent outlet. At that point, the team is paying your bills and you are a little more enthusiastic about the team's success. So, you know, the performances are, I think, generally pretty good. I think, you know, people look back at those kids and one one of the strengths of the movie, I think, is the way, and this is when we sort of, we talk a lot about authenticity. Oftentimes it's authenticity in in the context of the the sports being played. And like when they play baseball with each other, it looks like baseball that kids are playing. I mean, I have a problem with the way that baseball is presented in the movie. You know, it's in a lot of ways, the actual baseball is sort of incidental. Like, you know, do you believe it? They do a lot of tight shots whenever they, you know, they're supposed to be hitting a home run somewhere where that ball probably popped straight up in the air and all that. But like the, you're not watching this movie for like an authentic portrayal of baseball being played. They look like kids playing baseball and that's fine. The authenticity is really built around are these, you know, is the experience that they're having playing together as like a, you know, a nine person, you know, quasi kid gang. Like, do you buy that? Do you buy their being teammates, so to speak, Andy? And I think in that regard, like it's a really authentic feeling movie. Yeah, absolutely. The kids in this movie have a ton of chemistry together. Um, I was reading that, Smalls and Benny, the actors who play those guys, um, in particular, their chemistry works because the director had them show up and hang out a lot before they even began shooting. And they developed a friendship so real that the other kids in the movie who ended up showing up later thought that they actually knew each other for like a long time. It feels authentic in that sense. I mean, they, they feel like kids who all day, every day, that's what they do. And, you know, they've, they've got a tight bond. I mean, this group is tight enough to basically fill out a baseball team and no bigger. And mm-hmm. it's made pretty clear that these guys do this every summer. You know, the only reason that there's availability for Smalls is another kid had left. And, and these kids clearly have grown up in the same neighborhood for a while. So, yeah, the, the by-play between these kids, I think, is totally believable and works really well. In that way, like you, you go through and like you alluded to it, but like some of these iconic things, everybody knows smalls, everybody knows those types of things. This movie holds up pop, from a pop culture standpoint. It's one of these movies that I think holds up in ways that I makes me wonder how recently people have seen it. It's definitely like one of the more iconic baseball movies of that time like you people especially people our age or whatever like sports movies know the sandlot i don't know when the last time people saw the sandlot though like that's always what i find kind of interesting about movies like that what you carry with you in terms of timelessness and pop culture penetration because there's you're killing me smalls what else do you think is really stuck the beast it, i think the beast the, absolutely okay does. yeah the dog that lives in the, uh, the residence next to the sandlot. It's sort of like a combination of a house and a junkyard. And this dog, you know, in there, all the kids' imaginations is like the size of a water buffalo with, you know, teeth two feet long and, you know, devours baseball, devours metal and machinery and all. And like they've built up this dog that they call the beast in their minds to be like this mythical creature. And I think that holds up really well. Like in terms of just, if you reference the beast and you know, people know that you're talking about a movie, I think they're going to know, they're going to know what you're talking about. Well, I think that that was just, that was just played so well in the movie. It was, it was, it, it was built up so smartly 
in the movie to create kind of the way kids see things that are on the other side of the fence and this growing, ultimately irrational fear of doom on the other side. And that, and that was, that's it's such a necessary thing. It's like, what, what else in this movie would be the, you know, the, the conflict, the evil it's, you know, this dog turns out to be named Hercules, I think, but yes. um, it's a really, really great counterbalance to this otherwise, you know, whimsical sub carefree summer of um, Wendy Peppercorn, uh, which is the other thing I think holds up. Stuff like that, I think, kind of holds up, like just like, sort of the authenticness of the relationships in there. The pop culture penetration of it, like, it's just one of these movies that people remember and remember liking. Nobody dislikes The Sandlot. It's like we, we had the, the, the big debate with McManaman over Space Jam, which is just not a good movie. It's not. People don't like Space Jam, but there's a reason I think it has a, you know, an audience score of 91% and a critic score of 60 because there's plenty of stuff as if you want to break it down as a movie. That's not particularly well done where they, you know, I don't like, I don't really like the ending in Dodger stadium. I think, you know, James Earl Jones, who's awesome in everything, like, you know, that it ties things up awfully neatly when James Earl Jones comes back. There are a couple of times where uh, he's, he's got a baseball signed by the, all the 27 Yankees. Right. It just, it just happens, you know, very you know, like where this one does the same thing. Like oh, George and I used to, <laughs> yeah, it's like, you didn't get it. Like, Oh, we're in a pickle again. Like the word pickle appears in this movie more than any movie I've ever seen ever. Yes, we know you're the, you were in a pickle. We got it. <laughs> but like, well, it's kind of like the art of the dill. <laughs> oh, wow. There was also, by the way, there, the movie The Pickle, or the movie The Pickle <laughs> with Danny Aiello may not have had the word pickle in it as much as The Sandlot. As long as right. we're throwing it, as long as we're just beating this one to death. Uh, did you ever, when you played baseball, did you, did, I, we never called it pickle. We, we called it a pickle. pickle. We called we it a pickle. Yeah. We didn't. Like a rundown? Oh, yeah, we, we call it the pickle. Oh, rundown. Interestingly enough, the pickle came out in 1993. So there you have it. <laughs> Full circle. I mean, what I love about the Sandlot and, and, and the year 1993 is that you have, there was just this whole like moment, pop cultural moment where kid baseball movies became very in style. You had Angels in the Outfield around that time, Rookie of the Year, Little Big League was another oh, movie. Wow, yeah. And I remember all those. I, in fact, I remember all those movies much better as a kid than I remember the Sandlot. And I almost wonder if in some ways, I think the Sandlot might've been a little boring to me as a kid. I don't think it like gripped me as a, as a kid because I didn't get the, the nostalgia element of it. I didn't get really what that movie was selling yet. Whereas little big league, it's like, Oh, he's my age. And he is the, the manager of the twins. Like that could happen to me. That is cool. Whereas cause it's forward looking, you know, same with rookie of the year. It's like, you know, kid becomes pitcher for the Cubs. Angel to the outfield, kid, you know, gets close with the angels because he's close with the angels. The Sandlot you can enjoy, I think, at any age, but to like really get it and appreciate it, I do think you need to have a, a little life under your belt. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, for what it's worth, my daughter, who's nine, has seen the Sandlot and she actually really liked it. And she, I'd say, sort of has a casual interest in baseball. She doesn't necessarily follow it as much as she just likes the Dodgers almost as a concept. But mm-hmm. she has seen The Sandlot, and she, she thought it was really fun. She yeah, we, enjoyed we it. We put it on for my kids once, and they were fairly indifferent. I don't, we could probably try again, but they were reasonably indifferent about it. I remember liking this movie when I last saw it, but in reviewing it again, I liked it for different reasons. Like There were things I didn't like it the same way. It is not as good of a movie as I remembered. I remembered it being a better movie. 
uh, like better constructed, better directed, better acted, like all this other stuff. You just and really hate David Mickey Evans. It's not. I don't think he is an auteur that we necessarily <laughs> will remember in 25 years. He's had a better Hollywood career than I have. Yeah, it's all right. There are certain things I did like about it that I kind of had forgotten about just in terms of the dynamics between the kids. And if you really dislike this movie, if you start like you're probably not approaching it in the way that it's intended to be seen. I don't think you're supposed to sit there and really harp on the flaws of it as a student of cinema, directorial choices and, you know, every little thing that the actors do. It's just, it's one of those movies that is very nakedly obvious in what it's trying to do in terms of nostalgia and make you remember your childhood and a certain kind of childhood, a very specific childhood, sure, but one that a lot of people identify with. And that's about all it's doing. And I, in that respect, I think it's pretty successful. Well, it's much I mean, less of a baseball movie than any of these other films we've talked about also where, it, you know, it, you don't need a climactic baseball scene. I know Scotty Smalls hits the, hits the ball with Babe Ruth's signature over the fence and you know, that's his big triumph. But there's not like a climactic scene like at the end of Rookie of the Year where he throws the floater to strike out the, the big kahuna Yankee at, at the plate. I think that the, the most important thing to understand about why the Sandlot is successful is that the baseball is just the backdrop for childhood and friendship and kids in summer and getting into and out of mischief. Yeah, the, the movie could have existed just as easily if it had been about Sandlot football. It, it essentially would have been the same movie and the football that went over the fence that the, you know was next to the beast would have been signed by Johnny Unitas. Yeah. But it is essentially the same movie. I think, I think that's actually a really good observation, Bill, is that baseball is very much at the backdrop of this movie, and baseball provides a lot of the culture of the movie and the sensibility of the movie, but it's not really about baseball, so to speak. Well, I think you maybe you come to the movie for the baseball, right? Like a lot sure. of people who are baseball fans or who enjoyed playing baseball as kids – you know, that's the, that's the hook and that's what gets you in. And, and that's David Mickey Evans putting his stamp on it because that's what he loved doing as a kid. And I, I know we can debate how much his childhood could have actually looked like this because of, of his, you know, year of birth. But it certainly was, if not what his childhood looked like, something he wanted his childhood to look more like. I, just, I think it's successful. And by the way, one um, directorial choice I'll just put out there that David Mickey Evans actually is the narrator. The narrator in this movie, I think, really really works like it just it i just feel like it really strikes the right notes i feel like it he has just the right playfulness in the way that he um delivers those lines and kind of tells the story and so He's a better the, narrator than he is a director or writer or <laughs> um, I mean, even like the that he shows up with a plastic pretend mitt like a toy mitt and things like that it just feel like the details of this i thought were very relatable and real for sure um we always I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how many times i've seen this probably 30 this year. <laughs> I, I was like my fold my kid asks of- for it. He's like the movie with the baseball and the dog and the kid, the ball goes up, up and he tries to catch it, but then it hits him. That, that one. Can we watch that? So you can remember all of that and you can't remember the sandlot. <laughs> I know, right? it's, it's so much easier. <laughs> I mean, he, he's not good with titles. He still calls me mama. Oh, wow. wow. You do have a certain feminine quality about you, Bill. Um, a delicateness. Yeah. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) There's some interesting trivia stuff in here. James Earl Jones, who I know also is known for Field of Dreams, and that's his most celebrated baseball movie and has become associated with baseball, not into baseball in real life. 
actually grew up, was not a big baseball fan Interesting. at all. Um, and I saw a quote with him talking about it. The only Major League Baseball game is at the time when, when he did this interview that I ever took my son to was out in California in Anaheim. It was a nice day, and that's what was most important. And as I sat there, baseball is slow enough that when a flock of birds came over, you can look up at them and just enjoy the day. It was enjoying life being played out through baseball. So James Earl Jones, you know, so heavily associated with the folklore of baseball movies and culture, not a baseball fan in real life. Oh, you know what scene we forgot to talk about entirely? I, I don't know how we missed this. Was the, it was a scene where they all uh, chew the chewing tobacco and then throw up at the fair. Oh, oh my yeah. god! Like that is something that like like author because like we would sit there and we like it was we didn't do the, the chew although we did that a little bit Ugh. like dipping and all that like every kid sort of tries to experiment with that stuff every kid always does it wrong and every kid always throws, throws up. up every boy oh, oh my god I that got is a very watching that eleven year old nine year old ten year old eleven year old boy thing to do is oh. try chewing tobacco like that. oh my god it's the worst it, it is, is it, disgusting. It's the most disgusting tobacco habit. Cigarettes are so much better than dip or chew. And it's not if even you close. Have to, kids, if you're listening and you have to choose. Yes. This PSA smoke. brought to you straight out of 1963. <laughs> yes. I, I don't, re- I don't recommend. You smoke, don't dip I'm or sorry. chew. I, I, just, well, I just can't wait till The Athletic puts on, on, on their main Twitter account a clip from this. Andy Kamenetsky saying, oh, <laughs> cigarettes are so much better. I don't recommend anybody, particularly children, <laughs> engage in any of these habits. However, but, if you're going to, cigarettes are at least less gross. I'm not even saying go do that. I'm just saying you will be choosing the less gross one if you're smoking cigarettes. That's all. I don't recommend you get involved with any of them. As a former smoker, I will tell you, it is very, very difficult to quit. Children um, listening right the now. The photo of, uh, that James Earl Jones shows the kids of him with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig um, obviously isn't a photo of him and James, and, and James Earl Jones, uh, those people. <laughs> the person whose head James Earl Jones's body, James Earl Jones's head is put on is Jimmy Fox. Hall of Famer Jimmy Fox. So, which by the way leads to another interesting question in the Sandlot because as James Earl Jones is showing that photo of, of him with Babe Ruth and I mean George? think about the time George as he calls him because they were so tight and talk about playing uh, against Babe Ruth and he would have broken his records. The obvious part uh, that stands out is the timeline of this. Babe Ruth wouldn't have been able to play with somebody who was black which I thought was an an interesting choice. But then I started doing some research and I did not know this. Babe Ruth used to take part in these different barnstorming tours. These would be all over the country. There would be uh, barnstorming tours in Cuba and they often played against the Negro League teams. And Babe Ruth apparently was quite forward thinking racially when it came to playing with black players, being open towards black players, being in the majors, you know, at a time when, that was extremely unpopular. He actually got into some trouble with the commissioner at the time for his willingness to do this. And he actually got suspended for a little while, but it was so unpopular and caused such an outrage and the financial impact of not having Babe Ruth play, the, the punishment was eventually lifted. But I, through the Sandlot, I, I actually learned that Babe Ruth was really uh, that forward thinking and progressive. I believe at the time there were Babe Ruth truthers who accused him of being black having some sort of you know some black lineage so that was part there's always sort of a subtext of his story anyway bill any trivia on your end that you would like to throw out there 
I'm trying to think. I've kind of just dropped in the knowledge I have as we've gone along. Any guesses on which character from this movie would have been most enthusiastic about the reunion and meeting fans of the film? I'm going to say, yeah, yeah. I think he was there. I mean, a lot of the kids were there, but the guy who was the most enthusiastic celebrant at the Is end of the guy Russia, who played Babe Ruth? It was like the constable. You know, the guy with the mustache and, and goes forever. We haven't even talked about forever, but like forever. <laughs> the police officer he has yeah. this like one little glimpse of a scene and he was there wearing the same hat and like signing every autograph he was the happiest guy to be there wow so that is a real deep cut for did you. not see that one coming me neither we were talking about the sandlot kids not really breaking out much beyond uh this movie five members of that team patrick renna Chauncey Lapardi, Marty York, uh, Brandon Quentin Adams, and Grant Gelt all had different episodes of Boy Meets World. And also yes. the actor who played the great Bambino also had been on Boy Meets World. So in its own right, Boy Meets World was the sequel to The Sandlot. And just Art, Art LaFleur played uh, the babe, right? Yes. Yes, that is correct. Another just very put a, uh, guy, even if you don't know why. A bow on our previous conversation. The one direction that was given during the pool scene from David Evans to David Mickey Evans to Chauncey Lapardi during that pool scene when he kisses Wendy Peppercorn and put it kisses in air quotes, keep your tongue in your mouth. So <laughs> again, I think they were aware. Of they were aware, right. What was going on. Let, let's be respectful towards everybody involved. Right. Um, all right. So we are at the point now where we give it a grade here on this show because it's a sports show. Ostensibly we count the rings we scale like to grade things ten. on a grade, grading scale of one ring to ten rings. Bill Orm, you are a guest. You can go first. How many rings does the Sandlot get? It's hard because it's at what it does, it does better than any sports movie has. But I don't think it's the best sports movie. And I, but most sports movies don't do what the Sandlot does. So in its genre, which I would say is an, a nostalgia buddy film, I say it's a 10 ringer. Wow. Damn it. I'm going all the way. Wow. I think it, is, it has flaws. It's not an unflawed movie, but it is the best at what it does. It's like being a great left-handed reliever. You're not the best player on your team. <laughs> it's the Jesse Orozco. But you, but you, might, but you might win movies. 10 rings. You are the elitist person at that. It's, it's John Sally's career. <laughs> like just being on the right uh, by the way, John the right Sally time. participated in my oral history of the 2000 uh, Western Conference Finals. Yes, on the and by the way, week, and you guys can read that. Shout out to John very Sally. Good. Thanks, John Sally. It's very good. To paraphrase uh, JaVale McGee, shout out to Japan. <laughs> Actually, that's a direct quote from JaVale McGee. Shout out to John Sally. Andy, how many rings? Well, it ain't 10. <laughs> that's aggressive. <laughs> I'll give it seven, though. There are plot holes and construction elements to this movie that I, that I think affect it adversely, even when you take into account what the movie wants to be, which I think is a very sweet, saccharine nostalgia play, how it executes it. Like, I agree with Brian. I don't think the ending is particularly good. I actually think it's pretty lame. And I, I think really like the last 10 or so minutes of the movie, 10, 15 minutes are not as good as what led up to it. No, it's that, like, how do we get out of here? We need to wrap right. this thing up. <laughs> right. But that being said, it is a really fun movie. I think it's a really likable, charming movie. And I think in terms of what it's set out to do, it's largely successful. So I'll give it seven rings. I think it's a right. seven ring movie. We did Without Limits last week, which for me is a 10. There's nothing about that movie that I don't like. 
And when you compare a movie like that to a movie like this, I think you have to just make it clear you are not using the same evaluation for criteria for evaluation. Otherwise, if Without Limits is a 10, The Sandlot's like a four because it's just not, right. I completely it's agree. not made well in that way. So keeping in mind that I'm using a completely different set of standards to grade this movie as I did last week's movie and a lot of other movies that we've done, because the, the level of ambition, the level of, quite frankly, the level of competence that you're expecting, you know, we're never getting David Mickey Evans as a guest on this show. I can tell no, you. No, but it's just, you're not, you're not, it's not made to be, it's made to be a certain kind of movie. It's a, like you say, it's a nostalgia play. It's not trying to be the Godfather. Some movie, and when you try to be the Godfather and you fail, then you, you should be graded against the Godfather. And, you know, this isn't trying to do that, you know, in the same way that like, you know, pulp novels aren't trying necessarily trying to be Moby Dick. And, and that's fine. But so in comparing it to sort of like what it's trying to be, I agree with Andy. It's really successful. I agree with Bill. It's really successful. I think what it does well overcomes the stuff that isn't all that well done or shouldn't be. And so I, I'm more of a soft, uh, like a soft seven, six and a half, but I'll round up just because it's such, it's kind of a fun movie and it's like, it's hard not to like it. So an average score of an eight, that's a successful movie. Eight rings is good. I mean, I agree with both, with both of you guys. And that was kind of my question when, when I gave it the 10 was if I say it is a 10 and I think Rocky is a 10, am I saying it is as good as Rocky? No, no. It, it certainly isn't. And that would not be the hill for me to die on. I will die on a different stupid hill. Even if you're, if you're just looking at like the, the kid baseball movies of the early 90s, I'll take The Sandlot over any of them, despite the fact I very much enjoy all of those. I think The Sandlot is the most successful at it's better whatever than whatever it was, the year. Whatever it was achieve, attempting to achieve. Bill, enjoy your vacation. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. It's a pleasure. I've enjoyed these episodes, and frankly, it's a privilege to uh, get to participate in one. Well, we'll have you back at some it, point. It really is it. an honor for you and one of the best things that's ever happened to you. I agree. In a very sheltered life, yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, see you, man. Okay, thanks, guys.